You know, I've never had one. Oh, welcome to welcome to being a LaCroix boy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and welcome to you to the podcast uh, episode forty. Um, welcome to you, Hart, to being a LaCroix boy. Now your first yep. sips of LaCroix. How do you feel about it? I feel good about it. I was thinking about being a LaCrocs. LaCrocs <laughs> <laughs> Cox. Yes, yeah. that's that. what we should call ourselves. You know, I, I was a coxswain in high school, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want, let's talk about that. It was interesting. Every day after school, hop in the car with older high schoolers that were way cooler than me, and then At go like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> we would do morning practices and after school. Yeah, and uh, you know, riding a boat. Crew is uh, an insane amount of commitment, isn't it? It is. Uh, yeah, people. You know, it's like you know when you hear the stories about people driving for an hour and a half at five thirty in the morning to go to whatever swim. Pra- I mean, yeah, it's the same thing. Crew. Well, uh, Hart, you're currently wearing a blazer, so I can totally picture you like in a any kind of like crew uh, regatta <laughs> setting. What do they call? They call it a uni, right? Like just like this onesie piece. It's like late. Like, what are they? Spandex and uh, <laughs> no latex. So latex of everything. Be something else. <laughs> no, there's nothing. There's nothing like going through puberty in a in a unitard. Oh boy, <laughs> I would have quit. I would. You know, those were formative it. years, by the way. I learned a lot about. <laughs> leading groups of people and communicating with people while I was doing that. You know, I don't know. People make fun of coxswains all the time, right? Because they're just the little, the little people in the boat that scream things, right? Yeah. But you're you not do. even, you're not even moving your arms or you are, I don't know. Uh, I don't know you enough. move your arms slightly just to turn the rudder of the boat oh. or to adjust the volume knob on your microphone, <laughs> okay. which should already be on full blast, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just such a perfect metaphor for like the management class. You know? I mean, it's, not, it's not your fault that you're an allegory. They wouldn't. They wouldn't stroke without you there. <laughs> uh, they they would, but just not as well. Yeah, that's true. What is the purpose of the, like? What is the defense of having that extra weight in the boat? Like, you, presumably you could all do. They would all do it themselves. There's lots of tactical things in terms of when to row harder or faster, remaining organized during practice. There's lots of feedback in terms of technique and how you're moving your oars. So I don't know. You have you have to learn a. Some well, I'm things. sure, I'm sure yeah. that the sport has evolved to the point that where they're like they wouldn't add extra weight to it and have not realized they didn't need it. Like I know, I'm sure that there's some reason why it's necessary, but I mean, at the very least, it's better than having the guy like banging the drum for like ramming <laughs> speed. You know? Exactly. Um, um, do you have to like watch the other teams, or you also like absolutely? Like, oh, okay, that's like now, yeah. I figured, now I'm realizing as we're talking about, it, I'm like, oh, that's actually a huge advantage for right. you. Like, okay, th- we got we got, we can we can conserve some energy and pace outpace them at this point. Yeah, yeah. sure. And yeah. you know, th- there's there's different race classes. You know, short races, short sprints that are straight. Right. So maybe steering is not quite as important. But there are others that are long and winding down rivers, and, and yeah. you, you kind of want to do you know tactical steering as well makes sense yeah so speaking of long and winding let's talk right. about your life and career that you've had thus far sure. so um uh we have here Hartwell, um the fine beblazered man uh sitting with us today uh heart is a so right now i mean i'm, I'm an analyst at a re- at a private research firm working ex- explicitly on the on the middle east um doing media monitoring in arabic language um a lot of fun stuff focusing on iraq on. and syria Kind of nerdy, but I really enjoy it. No, yeah. that's awesome. I mean, yeah. that it reminds me of. Um, did you ever see Three Days of the Condor? No. It's uh, Robert Redford plays a CIA analyst who like his job is to like read books and stuff because 
their Russians are probably hiding secret coded languages in various published media. How do so I not he, have this job? That's <laughs> like, hard. I don't know. I hard. Yeah. Um, you and I are going to have a serious conversation about my career. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know you got this job like probably two days ago. So. Yeah. Um, but I think, I feel like you, I, you, and you only met me about uh, 10 minutes ago. So I, <laughs> so I feel like I can elevator pitch you as you've recently, or at least very, at the very least help me fix my elevator pitch so I can get whatever job it is that Rob Redford had in, the, in this movie. I love um, reading. I mean, he goes through a lot of drama too. So like, it's not, a, it's not all, it's not all giggles and reading. It's oh. a lot of running around and check car chases too. But, um, so well, in any event, it's taken you to some pretty interesting places during some pretty, uh, turbulent times. And so, uh, the conversation that I wanted to have today was kind of like, uh, not, not, you know, not that your life should only be about looking backwards, but, uh, what you went through. I mean, like the kind of stuff, like the environments that you saw and, you know, your feel for the societies that you were in. Um, I guess, uh, the place that I can lead it off is that I have been, so the place that you were living most recently that was not New York was Erbil, right? De Hook. Okay. But both, yeah, both cities in, in Northern Iraq and the Kurdish region. Yeah. Okay. Do you not say Kurdistan? Like, is um, that I'm too saying, loaded? I'm, I'm saying the Kurdish region because I've been reading a lot of Iraqi Arabic press in which they refer to it as, you know, the Kurdish region or the region of Kurdistan. And, but yeah, we can call it Kurdistan. That's fine. So, so like, have you ever, when I was there, I called it, it Kurdistan. You did call it Kurdistan. Yeah, there, and that's a commonly yeah. done thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think. It's not necessarily because people are make, taking political positions. It's just because, yeah, it's easy to call it Kurdistan. You may as well. And that's right. the way Kurds there definitely refer to it. Right. Kurdistan, yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so like uh, my, my introduction to Kurdistan was when I was doing real estate um, in uh, 2015 for five horrible, horrible weeks. And I was showing an apartment to this um, Kurdish guy. He was a Turkish Kurd. Hmm. And um, he, uh, we started talking about Erbil and he was mentioning that, like, he was considering going back there and, and leaving New York because there's, like, so much money to be made there. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in that because I was like, a place in Iraq that's rich and functional? What? Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I, like, did a little bit of research into it. And I, the more I, like, found out about it, the more I was like, this place is really interesting. Like, it's supposedly extremely safe um, and is also, like a couple dozen miles away from like the front against the Islamic state. (laughs) And so it it, it was a, so that's what I'm really curious to hear about, like the reality of it uh, from you. So like, um, yeah, I mean, so one, when you're in Kurdistan, there are a lot of Kurdish Americans or just, you know, non, non, you know, non dual citizen Kurds who talk about all the money they could make if they could just go somewhere else. Um, <laughs> mainly America, work for the Department of Defense or something. You know, that's, that's always on their minds. Um, so it's interesting that the guy wanted to go to, back to Kurdistan. But yeah, of course, there's plenty of money to be made there as well in construction and, you know, uh, cross-border trade, these sorts of things. Um, Kurdi- Kurdistan's very safe. Um, and yes, it's right, it was right up against, like, on the lines against, against the Islamic State in 2014, 2015. Um, but when I was there, you know, b- before I left, I was definitely scared. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. it's strange. Like, you know, when one reflects on, on one's life and the amount of, like when one cries and how much one cries, I would say the morning before I went to Iraq, I mean, you know, was, was, was up there, Yeah. which yeah. is weird. Like yeah. I was, yeah. you know, I, I feel very comfortable in the middle East. It's a place I love. I, yeah. I've traveled to a lot. Um, 
but Iraq was a huge unknown. Yeah. Um, and I was just sobbing. Uh, and you know, you're not a, before you're not, I went. You're not a member of the military. No, so no, so no. Like, how does one, as a civilian, get to... Like, you can't... Can you just buy a direct flight to Baghdad? This is a very ignorant question to me, but, like, I... It's yeah. true. I would never think... Like, I would never think to be like, oh, I want to... I'm just going to go. Like... That's a great question. Uh, to Baghdad, absolutely not. Okay. You need, really? a, you need a visa from the Iraqi federal government uh, in order just to fly into Baghdad. Uh-huh. Kurdistan, up until very recently... Yes. No. You could very easily fly there, get a tourist visa, stay for three weeks, whatever the time limit is, um, and have a great old time. However, now, since events uh, surrounding the Kurdish independence referendum and subsequent uh, efforts by the Iraqi federal government to reassert its authority, I believe that the Kurdish region is no longer allowed to issue visas, you know, unilaterally, however they want, outside of the administration of the federal government. Oh, so that was like kind of a... The f- but but the no year. one followed this advice for planning your own travels. That, that's just my... Yeah, okay, that's your yeah. experience. But <laughs> it like, could so also <laughs> change by the time anyone listens to this. Yeah, okay. but within right. like two days of editing, it's like, oh, never mind. So I guess that's interesting. I guess the Iraqi yeah. federal government had given some... Like given some leeway to Kur- or Kurdistan or the Kurdish region. In, in well, I mean, pretty much just the, there are no uh, Kurdish. I'm mean, sorry, f- Iraqi federal customs officials right. in Kurdish airports. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, they're just like not going to do anything. Right. <laughs> yeah, they, they uh, can't do anything if they're not there. Yeah. But, but but this was actually a major sticking point in in the Kurdish, in in the events following the the, the independence referendum, which is you know, the Iraqis saying, look, we're going to control every single border checkpoint, hmm. so you can't just do whatever your tax free, free trade is going to be with Turkey, and also we're going to start controlling the airports. Hmm. So um, maybe it'd be helpful to like to give some background on what Kurdistan is. I will uh, say everything I know, and then I'll let you fill in whatever I miss, which is everything. Uh, okay. I my first introduction to Kurdistan was uh, the lapel pin that Christopher Hitchens wore about Kurdish independence because he was um, obviously like a huge supporter of the Iraq War, and because he was uh, trying to um, alleviate the grievances that Saddam Hussein had basically caused on the country. And, and one of the major articles that Saddam Hussein was indicted with in international court was having gassed and tried to kill off essentially the Kurds in Northern Iraq. Um, and that also from a more kind of strategic perspective from a specifically American strategic perspective, Kurdistan was, especially after the um, fall of Saddam Hussein uh, became this fairly like de facto autonomous region, right? that was very amenable, uh, I think culturally and obviously like militarily to like cooperation with Western powers, especially after the rise of ISIS. And um, so well, I'm, 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 I'm remembering riding in a car from Erbil to Dehuk with a taxi driver who could not read anything at all. He, could, he couldn't read, um, you know, any Arabic or, or English. But he could speak English very well because he moved to the UK when he was 17 and just worked in a warehouse with some other Kurds he knew somehow and, and, and learned English. So he was fluent in Kurdish, Arabic, Turkish, and, and, and English, but couldn't read any of it, right? Um, and the reason was because from the time he was three or four, he was fleeing from various places in Iraq, into Iran, back to Iraq, um, and then trying to leave the country. Um, and all of that starts way before ISIS in the 90s, right? When, um, and, and even before, uh, I think some Kurdish rebel groups were op- opposed to, to the Saddam government, um, maybe uh, worked with Iranians or, 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 or the Americans assisted them in, in, in 
um, you know, s some efforts just to undermine the, the, the Saddam regime in, in the first Gulf War. Um, Saddam uh, enacted his revenge uh, against them, forcing people to flee into Iran. Then eventually when things became better, they could come back. You know, there's, there's, this, there's this history of, of instrument, instrumentalization of Kurds by outside powers for, for various interests. And th there are a lot of victims along the way. Um, and there's lots of seesawing see of, of political um, persuasions throughout that. I mean, in the same time that I'm talking about, of, of this, this taxi driver like fleeing Tehran, coming back, you know, a few years later, there's a massive civil war inside Iraqi Kurdistan itself, exclusively between political parties, um, just, for, just for political ascendancy, control over, the, over this semi-autonomous region. Um, it's a place that's complicated, that has uh, a pretty violent history. Um, and to say that it's just always been amenable to Western interests uh, is maybe true. Like, we, we, you know, the Americans have used them to our benefit. Um, and continue to, probably. And, and, and we continue to do so, both in, in Syria and Iraq. Um, and I, but I do think that when we're talking about Kurdistan, you know, uh, it's a very, very complicated place that's not uh, as coherent as, as we would like to think. Um, you know, Syrian Kurds are divided in, into several groups. Iraqi Kurds are divided into several groups. They're, they're Iranian Kurds, Turkish Kurds. Do the Kurds from uh, different areas, uh, do they feel like they're different? I mean, like, if, if you were to somehow, like, if we were to say, fuck you, Turkey, we're going to um, allow the incursion into your land, uh, that's going to represent like a full Kurdistan where they would like to draw the border. Um, would those, in, in other words, if you if you solved for that political issue, would the Kurds just internally all feel like they were uh, part of the same nationalism? The answer is definitely yes and no. Hmm. Always, like I think if you asked any Kurd, they'd say yes. Like you know, we're Kurds, we believe in Kurdistan, but uh, th they are even in Iraq alone, they are truly divided by by dialect. You know, each major city has a totally different dialect um, and, and political leanings. Um, I, was, I was actually thinking about this before our conversation, just thinking about, like, okay, what did uh, the fight for self-determination like, look like in U.S. history, right? And thinking about the, what was the political spectrum of revolutionaries in, in the United States. Um, I don't know. What was the thread that held us together, that enabled us to sort of build this combination? Geography, uh, geography is shared. I mean... Um, you know, European identity versus the native population. Right. Um, Certain states, it was so the well, right to well, own well, other so, people. Well, so if that's the case, if that's the yeah, case, like, Kurdistan has all of these things. Yeah. United by geography, united yeah. by common enemy or common forces yeah. that against the existence of Kurdistan. Um, maybe they're also uh, hindered by, by geography. When you think of, you know, what would a contiguous Kurdistan look like? Is this an economically viable entity? People talk a lot about state formation in Africa and the need for um, access to, to, to seas. This is why uh, DRC is, is always going to be a failed state because it is landlocked. It doesn't have a port, um, so it's just, not, it's just a non-starter. Um, in terms of the bigger question of just self-determination in people, you know, does Kurdistan have a right to exist? I mean, I think absolutely yes. Um, bringing that into reality? Probably impossible. And the right to exist question, I think, is is the, it's poignant and appropriate wording because I think that there are the way I think of Kurdistan has parallels with the creation of Israel, 
It's something that would rely on Western powers to essentially sanction it and then enforce this. And it's something that might not end up being as perfect as the most zealous proponents of that nation would want it to be. In other words, I, I kind of think of the way that it would have to be drawn um, to conform to like not breaching the border with Turkey, for example. And like I don't know what the deal with the border with Syria is. I don't know if there's anyone that could defend it. Um, from from Damascus, but that you'd essentially have to do something like a two state solution, where like Kurdistan gets part of what it, part of the geography it wants. Yes, to to create a viable Kurdistan, there would have to be a very uh, generous and artful uh, map drawing process that really would never happen. And the other ever happen. And the other thing about uh, the, about the, the Israeli uh, the Israel par- uh, parallel is that. In being, to whatever degree, amenable to uh, Western military, like, geostrategic imperatives, they're doing what they need to do to basically get, become, you know, an ally um, of the West to the degree that we would want to, it would be in our interest to support their their nationhood. Um, Sorry, you're saying it's in American interest to support Kurdish nationhood. It seems like they're doing what we would want someone to do if we were, if the if if our goal if your goal as as Kurdistan is to get us to sanction and help you enforce the creation of this new nation and then the recognition of this new nation they're doing everything we would expect them to do for that quid pro quo. Um No. What what are the terms by which American supports the creation of a new nation state? Generally, what, um, what do you what do you think are the checkboxes that we? Need? I think that they want to. We want don't them be, to be communist. <laughs> don't be run by. Well, and then I do, they do have. Well, that's what I'm saying. Well, I, I'm I'm joking saying that because so, it's kind of ironic so, in the post. I'm sorry. To I mean, I, yeah, I know. I think yeah. even this. It's like I don't even think that's. I don't think it's on the table. It's not part of the conversation. So it's not like it's not like we dangle that in front of them and, and ask them to, to meet certain requirements. It's just not happening, right? We ask them to do other things like participate in our efforts to kill the Islamic State, right? right? And then they say, sure, but you're going to have to give us a bunch of weapons. And we do, right? I think... But, but, yeah. but, but also be an open market. Be, um, you know, be a, a stable... Are, are they, do they have democratic leanings at all that we could say that this is a Middle Eastern democracy that we've helped found? Um, uh, uh, no. They're, okay, they're <laughs> not. So. Uh, the elections happen when they benefit the, ru- like the one of two ruling families that have controlled Kurdistan since, Kurdistan okay. since it's achieved semi-autonomy. Interesting. Um, elections happen. You know, a referendum happens, but... It's, um, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry to cut you off, but it's, it's, it's interesting that... I mean, it, that in the context of... Well, Lenny's kind of pro- projecting our Western values onto this. When... In reality, what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're like, no, they're just like, okay, if you give us a bunch of guns and some, probably presumably some money and other resources, then that's that's good enough for us. Like, we're cool. Like, we're cool. Well, I mean, then, don't, like, don't get me wrong. There are yeah. definitely people who believe deeply in democratic yeah, yeah. ideals and everything that we stand for, yeah. you know, in Kurdistan, but on also some of the most, you know, other other places, the most, right. some of those un- undemocratic places in the world. Um, uh, yeah, so so I guess if the question is, you know, does Kurdistan check a lot of boxes in terms of what a nation state is and should be and that America could potentially support? Yes. Does it miss a lot of boxes? Yes. What does it um, miss? Like, it also um, mo- it misses in terms of culture compared to the region, right? Sure. I mean, I just, uh, 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that is the question. Like, what what is yeah? What is statehood? What is nationhood? What, what are the terms in in the modern era in which new countries come into being? Uh, I, I don't know. Well, what's interesting to me about hearing this it's, is it's, that it, it, maybe it's just it's just about you know. If if you if you don't step a lot of t- on a lot of toes for the process to occur, then yes, it can happen. If you if, let us put a military base in your country, I mean, is, is that something they would allow? Um, you know, like, it, are you going to be a reliable partner of the United no, States? No, yeah, yeah. It just like, is know? the political cost not super great? Then yes, we'll, we'll support your statehood. And guess what? The cost is far too great in Kurdistan. It is too great. So it'll probably never happen. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because um, I. You being closer to it, it is to you that much more a non-starter. Like it's not an option. Like in uh, maybe the way to say this is that you might be surprised to know that my impression of it was that this is something that could happen, and in my mind, morally should happen. And maybe that's why I thought it was more possible. But why is it like? Why is it such a non-starter that the United States would would let this happen or would would be a part of the creation of it? Well. So it's interesting. I'd say uh, eight months ago, I actually thought it was a pretty reasonable possibility uh, because of the independence referendum, right? I was here in Kurdistan. I was I was watching, you know, thousands of, of Kurdish flags being put put all over all over the streets. People, you know, being so excited to participate in in this this process to declare their essentially declare their independence from Iraq, um, and you know. A week after it happened, there's Iraqi federal troops, you know, reoccupying places that they haven't been in for years. Mm. Um, And it just, and and then given the opportunity to reflect a little bit on the independence referendum process, which was dominated by a single political party ruled by a single personality who just decided that it was in his interest to dictate the the timing of the of the referendum process and it was his political uh influence that that resulted in any real participation in it um you can't just say that you're going to become a country and then do it because other people are going to resist and i mean i think the next most recent example of this is south sudan I don't know if you know yeah. anything about about. It's the most recent Google Map redrawing I've seen. Sure, they're, 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 I'm like, hey, this used to be one country, and now there's like a dotted line across the bottom of it. Does, does South Sudan satisfy the geographic requirements for for a viable state? Yes. Um, okay, you you're, you say yes. That's great. Fine. Um, but for me, I think I'm, I'm I am interested in the process. Right. We have we have the United Nations involved. Um, you know, there's this. this it's a long term, gradual. Uh, I don't know re- re- referendum and and then and then a clear time timetable for for independence and statehood. Um, I think that's probably a little bit better than what the Kurds attempted in northern Iraq. Do um, so you think they weren't they weren't as interested in in the the process of it or like they, they didn't get the process right? I mean, there is one family and, and one party uh, that's the the KDP and Barzani. Um, who just decided that, that this is what they were going to do. And, 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 and the reason they did it is because they saw uh, an opportunity starting to close with the defeat of ISIS. They assumed that the Iraqi federal government was so weak that they could not oppose a unilateral move towards independence. And, okay, maybe now our lines are reintersecting because I thought that they thought that they would also have the support of Western military powers who would allow that to happen because they right. could use it, they could exploit it essentially. So that was a, that was like actually, that was a narrative that was 
you know, uh, distributed, I, I think, by pro, by pro-independence Kurds. Uh, but I'm fairly convinced that in Western, like, government circles, there is not a single person who gave any assurances of backing. Um, so they sort of closed their ears to the continued warnings by the Americans and others um, and, 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 and went ahead with things and then thought you, that they had been betrayed, but they had not. Do you think it was naive of me to think that it was um, like a betrayal on, American, on, on the United States' part to not support uh, an independence vote? I, I just think I'll say that it's not unreasonable for the most powerful country in the world that has led the, you know, the entire international system and defended borders for decades to be against a political position that results in the redrawing of six countries or, you know, five, maybe five, you know, many countries' borders, four countries' borders, um, particularly when those countries would be willing to violently resist that move. And we are not in a position to violently defend that. I mean, I mean look, this is the same thing that I've struggled with throughout this entire conversation, right? Balancing the ideals of believing in self-determination with actual real political challenges, which are the Turks aren't going to stand for this, the Syrians aren't going to be opposed to this, um, Syria's allies are going to be opposed to this, the Iranians are opposed to it, and the Iraqi government's going to be opposed to it. And who do we choose between all of those and the Kurds? Yeah, that would end up being the next Iraq war. It would be the struggle for America to support the creation of I mean, Kurds. It, it would be the next, yes, it would be, but it would also be the next Syrian civil war, essentially, right, I mean, right, where, right, where you yeah. have, you know, as many countries as, as, as can be, you know, throwing throwing whatever militias and, and, and money and, and, and guns they can behind whoever they prefer. That contextualizes it. I think my difficulty was I was imagining it as more of a vacuum than it really is. I think I misunderstood. I mis I underestimated how much resistance there would be. I understood Turkey, but like not, you know, from, from all of the parties. I didn't had no idea there was this much internal tension inside of Kurdistan too. Well, and narratively to me, it seemed to make, it seemed like to the West, it seemed like, oh, okay, this is a representation of the post-World War II, post-colonial, kind of almost arbitrary border drawing being corrected. So, right, because the reason why Kurdistan doesn't exist as a nation state is because, like, well, British and other colonial interests kind of were just like, okay, well, you're Iraq, you know, like, uh, this is a gross oversimplification, but just like, these regions are this autonomous country that we'll recognize right now, and there's a little bit of a power vacuum, and somebody will take over. Same same deal with Africa, right? Same thing with sure. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, and that's why, and, pe and people in the West often point to that. It's like, oh, that's why these places are also such basket cases now. And so this seemed like, I think, the perspective to, to a lot of Westerners was like, oh, here's like an ethnic kind of nation state that doesn't have a nation state. And they're like, this is finally a recorrection for a mistake that was made by Western governments 70 or so years ago. Yeah. Also, what what is the economy like? Is it is it a consumerist economy where like Coca Cola could move in? You know, I mean, is it like is it amenable to the United States culture in that way? I mean, sure. There, I mean, there's plenty of um, Western companies that are there. Um, you know, one of the first things I did when I got into uh, Iraq and Kurdistan was go to the used clothing market, and which I later found out I was not supposed to go to. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's not know. it's not hip enough. It's, right, it's, right. They haven't yeah. smorgasbord hasn't hit that um, yet. <laughs> and the first thing I saw was a pair of sandals made in Iran. And I guess I had I don't know I, as just an American I had never actually seen an Iranian made product. But 
you know, a huge percentage of, of the products in, in, in Kurdistan are from Iran and the rest are from Turkey. Yeah. So, and you mentioned also that, that the cab driver that fled into Iran. So Kurdish, Kurdish people generally are like uh, the, the Shia powers will tolerate them or what's the, what's the dynamic between them? Um, I think that, okay, so there are some internal Iraqi, there is, there is an internal Iraqi Kurdish political party that is relatively aligned with, with the Iranians. Um, the border, it flows. Um, I had a coworker who for her honeymoon, they were considering just going to Iran for their honeymoon. So it's, it's not like it's a, it's a closed thing. The relationship is, is fine. It's an open border. Um, you know, things flow, people flow. Um, but of course the Iranian government, uh, does its best to undermine the efforts of Iranian Kurds to achieve their own independence right. aims. Okay. Um, but, but other than that, it's, it's a pretty you know, normal so, situation. So the, um, how, how accurate do you think, uh, this is a, a better question than to back up, how accurate do you think the narrative of Iraq is that it's this Manichaean struggle between Sunni and Shia and, and, the, and what is Shiite is an extension of Iran and they're you know, trying to extend their hegemony? Well, there's an internal debate among Shia Iraqi politicians that's entirely about the extent to which Iran should have any influence over Iraq's future. Mm. Um, if you look at the most recent Iranian ele- Iraqi elections on May 12th, uh, the top four parties that you know, represent in a parliament based on the current results uh, are all Shia. Uh, and they're divided among those who are viewed as directly influenced and controlled by Iran and those who say we don't want anyone to interfere in internal Iraqi affairs. And then the rest of the Iraqi political spectrum is, is, is relatively sectarian. Various Sunni Arab uh, parties and groups um, and then Kurdish groups. Um, so let's talk about that election. So they, it was voted to uh, be, or not voted, it was, there's a large outcry that the results be decertified to a large degree. Um, I guess there was a lot of fraud uh, or, or supposedly like over 100 voting sites had been compromised in some way. Yeah. Um, and I think also uh, Muqtad al-Sadr's uh, coalition had like achieved uh, an unprecedented uh, like parliamentary placement. Um, and I don't know if that's controversial within Iraq, too. I'm sure I know how the United States feels about that. Um, do you know what happened with the, with the election? It's tough really to know. This is the first election that used electronic ballots. Um, Formerly, they used the thumbprint thing, right? Like <laughs> no, the, they still use the thumbprint. Oh, really? Okay. So, well, yeah. sorry, the thumb yeah. ink is just for showing that you voted. Uh, and to okay. prevent the fraud of double, like, re- of double yeah. voting, right? Yeah. Um, but so this was, the, was supposed to be the first election in which there was electronic ballots. Uh, they could tally everything very quickly, and we would know the results right away. But that didn't happen. The results were very much delayed. There have been videos on social media and then published on regular media um, of this guy just with a whole stack of ballots just filling, <laughs> filling them out. Um, but, but, you know, that's, a, that's like a three-second yeah. video clip yeah. that every news network has now played. Yeah. Um, and it's not really clear. Like, okay, cool. Like, so is that real? Like, was there... Okay, and if it's one dude in one voting po- polling place, like, it's not going to fundamentally... I don't know. I mean, it's still highly illegal, and we should have consequences. Take him to court, whatever. Like, you know, but it's not. It's not going to have How an effect on the, on the final results. I I don't know, and I don't yeah. think anyone knows. Um, all of the losers were very quick to shout that the elections were rigged. Hmm. Um, 
Sounds familiar. And 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 then and then it's almost like they haven't stopped, and 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 various others have have sort of have called for us to revisit some of the results. Um, yeah, and so and so now there, there's gonna be a, a, a decent number of 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 results have been thrown out, and there I guess there's there's gonna be manual counting of some kind. Um, yeah, and, and and people just don't know. It's it's kind of like a war of war of, war of the words kind of thing. But I think the most concerning issue of all this is that in, in these initial results is that, and I was not the first person to say this. Um, there's a great Atlantic uh, Council blog about this. You know, the the top winners are people with militias, par- parties that are linked directly to armed actors. Um, there there is this sense that. I don't know. To have a successful democracy, you need to respect institutions. You need like, the people need to believe in your institutions, and your institutions need to function. And one of the reasons why, in this particular election, there there was the lowest turnout in in you know in Iraqi electoral you know at least since two thousand three. They've only had you know four elections since then. But um, also, if we compare it to our own turnout, we complain about our electoral turnout. Well, guess what? Theirs was like twenty percent less yeah. than ours, <laughs> right? Um, it's because the Iraqis don't believe in their institutions. But they were also under, they were being intimidated in certain places, weren't they? And um, in Kirkuk, which is a place that's had, a, a, it's been at the center of political and you know, violent armed conflict for a while because of its value um, in terms of oil resources and the fact that it lies directly on a, on a Kurdish federal line. Uh, that... Uh, there, there was supposedly some, some of that, but it's not something like where like all across Baghdad, uh, people were being forced to vote right. certain ways, like in um, Venezuela, <laughs> right? Um, and uh, also that the 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 parties um, were largely unchanged, or like there was like a lot of old faces that people had already kind of not trusted, and so it, was, it felt like voting for the same people again. Do you think that was a uh, in play? Yeah, so I was watching a YouTube uh, channel of, of a local Mosul news network, and they were just going around asking people, you know, what do you think about the results? This is, this is um, a Sunni Arab uh, city, right? Um, and so you would expect them to be a little bit unhappy with the results of, in which, you know, you know, their parties didn't perform particularly well. But, you know, all, all they can shout is just, you know, it's total rigging, you know, we don't, you know, <laughs> Or other people would be going. They were they were they were interviewed on their way to the to the to the to the polling places, and they'd say, "I'm going to vote for anyone who has never been in parliament before." Right. So, you know, it sounds the, like the people who we've even, exported exactly American no, democracy. Exactly, these people. No, exactly. <laughs> like, it, it makes me just think of, of 2016. Every every single time I, I'm I'm watching this coverage because it's just like, look, these people, the people who are voting, don't believe at all in the institutions right. that they have or, or their representatives, and you know, sixty per sixty more than sixty percent of the population just stayed at home because of the like for the same reasons. And also, it, it also struck me that way because I was reading that Muqtada al Sadr himself was apparently in the lead up to the election, decrying that this is going to be rigged. And then it turns out he overperformed. And he's like, actually, <laughs> never mind. <what?" laughs> no, no, exactly. Yes. Um, and yeah, you know what's? I want to read uh, an excerpt from a, uh, an Economist article that was published just before this because I thought it was really interesting. Um, it, it's from uh, March 31st, and um, uh, it was basically, uh, it's kind of a rose-tinted view, I think very like self-congratulatory about what Iraq means for the power of Western nation-building, whatever that phrase means. 
Um, th so this is from uh, March 31st. Um, remarkably, given its belligerent past and the region's many conflict, uh, Iraq enjoys cordial relations with all its neighbors. America and Iran may be a bit of rivals, but both give Iraq military and political backing. Um, Gulf states have restored diplomatic relations and want to invest. And uh, this is the main part. To cap it all, Iraq remains a rarity, the only Arab state other than Tunisia to get rid of its dictator and remain a democracy. It's the fourth multi-party election since 2003. And um, the society is generally free. Uh, does that resonate with you? And, and do you think that there's any meaning to the fact that it's nominally still this like freestanding democracy? Is it a freestanding democracy? So, I mean, just listening to that, I, I do think it is remarkable that yeah, like uh, these elections have happened, but and and, and there are accusations of fraud. But the accusations are taking place in a robust media environment in which there are many, many different news outlets. Though uh, most of them are aligned to particular political parties, which uh, uh, is not the best. Um, but they're also happening in the parliament itself. You know, it's it's not just people immediately you know pick it, picking up arms and and saying, well, screw it. Like I'm just gonna you know. I, I, you know, I don't know, we'll let the world burn, right? There, there's still at least some pro process for, for voicing d dissent. Um, but I, I didn't, don't find the argument particularly compelling uh, with regards to foreign policy, the, this, this sort of we're, we're friends with all of our neighbors thing, and that's, that's a sign of the sophistication of, 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 the, of the Iraqi uh, statehood project. Uh, no. Iraq has relations with his neighbors because everyone has interests in this place. Or maybe you're saying that everyone has interests in this place because it's been a successful state-building project. Maybe, but, but it's also just a function of geography. You know, the Iranians were attacked from Iraq in the 80s, and I think they'll never forget it. And, and it's going to be one of their top um, objectives of their foreign policy to make sure that there is a government in Iraq that's amenable to Iranian interests, or at least the place where where they can never be the site of of of, of an attack on, in the direction of Iran. That's something that they say a lot, actually. Do they outright that, say it. Do you think that the Iranian the allegations that Iran is like super outright trying to control the region that they have these designs on it the way that America has designs on the entire world? Are accurate. Absolutely. I mean, yes, and and you said it yourself, right? It's the exact thing that we try to achieve. It's the exact thing that the Israelis try to achieve. It's the exact thing that the Turks try to achieve, and Egypt. Everyone, everyone has the capacity to influence other governments. Does so, and even those who don't try. Because the narrative that I've heard, like on the left here, is that, for example, the Houthis in Yemen mm. uh, are often said to be like proxies of Iran, and that's why it's okay that we're massacring them. And that that's not really the case. That actually Iran is, or I think that, I think some of this was brought up when it was like, well, it's okay that Qatar uh, has. Hey, can you definitively say how to pronounce that country? Is it Qatar? Yeah, I'd say. I mean, look, in an American accent, we can never really accurately pronounce these countries' <laughs> names. Just just like yeah. a, just like yeah. Iraq. Like I say Iraq, a lot of people say Iraq, yeah, right? right? That's the real American accent. Uh, way yeah. But but in Arabic. You, Anyway, yeah. So you should you can say I would say Qatar if I Qatar. were. Okay. Yeah, I heard yeah. Iraq is saying Iraq is like saying I Italian. I kind of prefer I Italian, honestly. Uh, Italian, um, but even it was even brought up in the in the Qatar uh, yeah. conversation that you know like this is that um, even this is like a sort of salve against Iranian power because it's somehow like you know it's making that like field that they that they have access to somehow less valuable or something. In other words. There's this boogeyman of Iranian influence in the region, and I wonder how real it is because the narrative of it certainly benefits Western powers that are trying to 
you know, ally- that are allied with other inimical actors there around? I think that a lot, a lot of this is a function of Saudi fear of obsolescence. Uh, fear of fear, fear, fear of their own people. Right. Um, fear, fear of, fear of the future. Fear of the the oil wells running dry. Um, but at the same time, look, the, yeah, the the Iran the Iranians give weapons to the Houthis. Definitely, definitely they do. Why? Because they love being a thorn in the Saudi side. They love being able to 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 compete with them in a, in another, you know, in as many environments as they possibly can. Um, that doesn't legitimize us, you know, uh, enabling a Saudi war, which has resulted in the starvation of millions and millions of people. Speaking of spotty American alliances, uh, you were living in Egypt when uh, Mubarak was overthrown, right? Yeah, I, I, I landed in Egypt in, on like February 2nd, 2011, you know, a week into the January 25th revolution, landed into an airport that I, I, I wasn't even convinced that they would still be accepting flights, but I, I, it's like they were. Um, and like, I had this very memorable, like harrowing cab ride, sort of in the dark, you know, going to, to, to my my friend's uh, apartment in, in Cairo, and, and like, there just being like, like fires in the streets, but, but those fires weren't necessarily anything. I mean, just like maybe some a group of people in their neighborhood keeping watch right. because the yeah. security forces had entirely abandoned and no one knew what was going on when they were mm-hmm. afraid of looting and stuff. But you know, for someone who's just arrived, you know, <laughs> like the early twenties, hard is just kind of like, my God, what what have I done? <laughs> you f- you fully embrace the idea of like I'm gonna go to scary places <laughs> in spite of my my own self interest or yeah, my brain's like yeah. resistance to that idea. No, that, that was re- that was that was a scary one, but I, I was also so young. It was just kind of like, whoa, yeah. the, the the victory of this revolution is inevitable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was, it was you saw, know, days I, later, days later. I'm a, I saw a tweet yesterday that was like. I'm old enough to remember when people thought this website could bring democracy to the Arab world. <laughs> uh, and it was, yeah, I remember it was, they were heady days when they thought that the Arab Spring was a thing and like could work. And, and I was uh, a believer, man. Yeah, no, I, 100%. It was, yeah, not too, it was like it was the time's come. Yeah. I remember when people making the argument that like, well, you know, it makes sense because all of these leaders have been there for around 30 years, you know, and that's pretty much the normal cycle of when tyrants, you know, dictators start to kind of lose their luster. Saddam probably would have been caught up in that too. Hey, there's a question. Can you say, do you, what do you think would have happened in Iraq in the quote unquote Arab Spring? Do you think Saddam would have had enough firepower to stave it off like uh, Assad? Um, yeah, that's a great question, actually. Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I don't know at all. It, I, I actually, I mean, wh- why, di- why didn't these security forces uh, stave off things in Egypt? Because they were part of the, they kind of co-opted the revolution, didn't they? I suppose. I mean, Mubarak ordered the army to fire on Egyptian pe- the Egyptian people, and, and they refused. Um, so maybe the and same would have... And in power now, and, and so that, you know, like... They they kind of saw their opportunity. It's kind of like a popular military, a popular enabled military coup, ultimately, right? Well, I mean, look, the power of the security. Sir, I mean, there are people who are such deep experts on this, but you know, my understanding is that like the security forces, the security services in in Egypt were and are extremely powerful, and the reason why the coup even happened was because of an all out. Uh, not war, but you know, but, 
Mohamed Morsi, the Muslim Brotherhood president who was elected in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, was attempting to really wrestle power away from the security services. Um, and, you know, maybe someone will say that I'm totally wrong about this, but, you know, maybe if, if he hadn't done that, the, the coup, you know, it, would, it would just would never have happened. And, and, and there would have been an opportunity for, for Egypt to go through a few electoral cycles in the same way that Iraq has. And, and maybe the, the politics would have all gone, gone to hell. Um, but maybe not. Maybe the experiment in democracy would have, I don't know. How uh, hard did you face Palm when you heard John Bolton uh, try to tell Kim Jong-un that it was all going to be okay because he's going to follow the Libya model, <laughs> a.k.a. getting essentially anally raped to death by your own people? Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know what success story he's... He, what is he trying to... Th- I mean, what is he... You know that picture of the guy who used to run that country, but it looks like there was <laughs> a million holes in his body? <laughs> We're going to do that for you. <laughs> what do you think? Um, um, no, no, but I think he's probably referring to the uh, renunciation of... I mean, I, I could be wrong, uh, of, 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 the, of Gaddafi's chemical weapons program. Uh, Gaddafi saw an opportunity in the immediate post-Iraq environment. He sees that Saddam has, has gotten screwed, and so he, sorry, uh, defeated on a battlefield and physically removed from office, right? right? Yeah. Um, and he saw, he saw an opportunity to try to, you know, rebrand with the West, but the, give up his chemical weapons program and make friends. But Yeah, but then, but then wouldn't that be the example of Kim Jong-un being like, hey, uh, that strategy doesn't work <laughs> either, right. either, buddy. That's yeah. why, why he would double down on getting nuclear weapons or any chem, anything. Right, that would and, that's, like, and that's definitely what he's trying to do, yeah, right? Like, Just delay as much as he can. That's, I mean, or at least, sorry, that's definitely what the typical analyst, North Korean analyst take is on everything right now, is right? Delay at all costs. The second that we have an ICBM that can reach American territory, our, our negotiating position is, it just increases by such a great degree um, that that's, that's our goal, right? To delay to that point, and then we'll be in a position to survive forever. Mm-hmm. Well, isn't that, would someone say, is that, is that also extended to Iran? Is that why people are so nervous about the Iran nuclear deal and the Iran nuclear program? That sure. It's like, well, I mean, like in their own self-interest, they would want probably a nuclear weapon based on what they've seen in evidence in Iraq and Libya, you know? They, well, so that, that's a choice before all of these countries, right? Yeah. Ensure your survival by... Ingra- like, I mean, not ingratiating yourself, but, you know, becoming a member of the international system, joining us, you know, our League of Nations, right? To quote <laughs> some uh, neocon in the last five days. Uh, and, uh, or, or, you know, continue to be isolated and an enemy and get, and fine, get your weapon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think that many Americans think that this join our community option is very shiny and very enticing and will inevit- and, and it's actually the inevitable choice of almost all of our enemies, Russia, Iran, China. They are going to stop dragging their feet on joining us Western civilized countries, right? Um, and, and eventually see the light and become one with us. But that really hasn't happened, uh, particularly in the case of China. I mean, I, I think there are a number of countries that have shown decisively that they can make take their own path especially and, and given, they've done so especially yeah. given that like the, the thing that's kind of new is that their own path could look a lot like the tactics and the culture and the economic structures of our path it's just not run by us it's right. like just a different overlord like right. you know it's gonna be the chinese world trade organization instead of the um but i, I also well, and, so, so, and that just underlines the importance of evening the playing field like, and it's, it's, I mean, also, uh, maybe we'll get upset here, but 
you know, the TPP was a little bit about this. When people mm-hmm. say the TPP would have screwed the United States, the answer is, okay, whatever price we have to pay, that's the cost of creating you know, a playing field that people are willing to actually step out on. And that's a price we're willing to pay because we have a $17 trillion GDP and, 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 and it's, we're, we're able to pay it. And we should for the sake of creating a community of countries that, that cooperate and, and, and trade effectively with one another. Yeah. I mean, the TPP conversation, the, the best like, you know, phrase uh, sort of epigram, epigram I've heard about it is that it would have directed like 40% of the world's economic activity at America. Like it would have, we would have been the channel that all of Southeast Asia um, and Japan and everything ran through. Um, but I think that what's interesting is that uh, you have essentially this choice between, you know, sort of elite, um, totally rational, but strategic at a very high level uh, control over that important part of the globe versus populist um, pain felt at that, you know, um, and that that populist pain won out. Yeah. And that is interesting. You should, uh, so the, I, earlier in the, you should really read this book, actually. So I picked up this book last night on a whim. Um, it's called American War by Omar El Akkad. Uh, he's a Egyptian born, but Canadian journalist, uh, I think lived in Canada for most of his life. Um, and I, at first I thought it's essentially a, a, a book about a, civil, a potential civil war taking place in America about you know, 50 to 70 years from now. Yeah. Um, and it's at, when I first picked it up, I was like, I'm willing to indulge a lot of sci-fi premises, but I was also like, this book was on sale. I don't really buy it. I, I feel like I'm not going to like this. But then I realized as he was writing it, he was actually writing a reflection of kind of essentially what's going on in, in Syria and other parts of the Middle East right now, as if it were taking place in Iraq right now. So he talks a lot about humanity. In America. States. In the, uh, pardon me. So he was writing about re- replacing the action that's going on in Syria and other parts of the Middle East, Libya certainly, Iraq, parts of Iraq certainly, and pu- placing that in the, the United States. Right. Um, and uh, because... As often with dystopian novels, they are actually more of a reflection of their current time. Um, so I'd be curious, A, for you to read it because it's talking about like the misfiring of – it's clearly he's uh, editorializing about like the misfiring of humanitarian services. A lot of it's about how Americans would react to being be, being put in or being internally displaced people. Um, but it's also an interesting uh, – uh, it's an interesting perspective that do you think that – there could ever be this potential for the kind of civil strife that you're seeing in in the Middle East if, here in America in a, in a not too distant future, like where where people continue to be um, radicalized, popularized, uh, religious uh, religious right right wing leaders continue to move on, economic deterioration starts to happen, people have less economic opportunity. Uh, when I think of the Arab Spring, right, the starting point in that was people who were educated but under an authoritarian regime that are interested in changing that and having, have, have, having you know, uh, an open say, an open conversation about how they're governed and, and the direction of their country. So isn't that the starting point of the United States right now, no matter how, what you think about you know, Trump, right? We, we still are a functioning, open society in which we have conversations with one another and and the government is somewhat responsive to our needs right Mm -hmm. and so the direction of strife that's that's put out here is 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 authoritarian or fascist voices Mm -hmm. nibbling away and and to the point of a you know of of an all-out like a civil war of some kind um so it's kind of difficult for me to game out 
what would have to happen in, in terms of politics to, to reach that point. Like, I'm interested in, like, what, where are the lines where the militias are going to be in the United States when it, when it breaks down, right? Yeah. Like, where I, are the lines? I, Is it I Philly would, versus New York? I no, mean, well, that's an interesting thing. I'm, again, only a quarter of the way of the book, and I implore you to read this book because yeah. I think you would, I can, by having a short conversation with you already, I can tell that you'd, this has already peaked your, you've already hit points in, I guess, the international relations and international humanitarian affairs um, uh, area of expertise that they are discussing in the book, and it's kind of interesting. So that, that is certainly explored. I won't, I won't spoil the rest of the book because I think you should but pick I mean, it up. Yeah. Bro- broadly, bro- like more just broadly about the concept of like uh, an American Civil War. Yeah, and you know it's it's topical because this week there was that New Yorker post. I actually didn't even read it because we've talked about this before. Uh, the chance someone something tank put the chances of like an American Civil War at like thirty five percent or something, which is threat t- level midnight. Exactly. Or whatever, like, the clock, yeah, yeah, yeah. the doomsday. Yeah. It's the doomsday. Yeah. Yeah. Well, threat level midnight being the office version of the do- doomsday clock. <laughs> I think the, I think the doomsday yeah. clock is midnight. Is when someone. Like takes over the lease of the building that the doomsday clock is in, like the <laughs> destruction of the society that they, those scientists have, and yeah. you know the day that the, the day that we stop covering the doomsday clocks movements is going to hit midnight. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I think uh, I mean my like stock joke about this is that in order to have a civil war, you'd have to have someone preventing the South from seceding <laughs> instead of being like yes, please. But um, oh oh oh, uh, uh, uh. Mm. but like we no, would, we, would, we, would like, we would do that by yeah, the way. You oh, think we would? I don't. I don't know. I think do, do we have politicians with the courage to say no? We are a union, and we will defend that union by force. I don't think that. I think that the idea that existed of the American experiment that was worth defending in Lincoln's time, and not only that, yeah. the sort of free soiler idea of we need to prevent the evil of slavery that is kind of this smirch. You know, it's like this kind of like exploded policy battle on steroids and you throw in like basic human morality that that was building for decades right it was building decades. for decades and it was also yeah. something that like conceding uh, secession is going to allow something to continue that's a fundamentally like, it's an animating moral grievance right? right 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 that's not the case when it's like hey we would be living happily as like super canada while you know like the essentially this like wannabe third world that like believes in you know religion over science like wants snake to, handlers yeah yeah <laughs> wants to go yeah so like it's in this case it's more of like cutting off socially economically um kind of like assist as opposed to well, struggling to prevent something that I, you want to prevent i would say and i'm sorry i would say though that we would do it the second right now there's part of part, certainly people in the north or northeast or west coast who are like they're dragging us down. We pay more. I mean, for every tax dollar that goes out of New York, four go into Alabama or Mississippi or whatever. They're kind of like the grease of, of the United States. Um, and but at the same time, there are obviously economic reasons. There's uh, that we would keep them around. I think like uh, the second they become an economic, a real economic. Uh, liability i suppose that i mean there's something to having ports like alabama and uh, like uh, like ports in birmingham montgomery that kind of stuff yeah Uh, i like there's something to be said to that i also think those people would get real gear gassed up on the idea of secession and the south will rise again but the second they realize that they need a passport to go from like 
Montgomery, Alabama to New Orleans, then or wherever, like well, or that, that, Houston, I mean, Texas, or like whatever state didn't secede, then they would be like, ah, oh, never mind. Like this is too hard. Yeah, like, I mean, I think, it's like I think they're not going to put their happen. life on the line for you know. I mean, it's uh, yeah. There has I, to be some kind of impetus, whether it's I think an economic or ecological impetus to to make it happen. That would be it. Yeah. And the tough thing too is that like we like to joke about East Coast leaders and stuff, but like. The, every city is surrounded by like the other America, you know, oh, it's, for not sure. the, it's not that geographically easy to draw. Yeah. Um, it's covered in the book. Everyone read the book. This is a good book. Okay. I, Brian, <laughs> loves, Brian loves love the book. book. Buy the book. <laughs> um, as, as a Southerner, uh, I have to say that I think our union is stronger uh, together. <laughs> yeah. I'm with her. Okay. So awesome. Um, Hart, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Hart, there any- thanks for giving us balanced and reasonable and intelligent insight. <laughs> yeah. A thing that and we educating me about stuff I didn't know anything about. Yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Uh, see you guys later. Thanks, later. guys. Bye.